Welcome to Alchemy, the home of the open mind. Our guest this episode is Andrew K. Fletcher, and we'll be talking about inclined bed therapy. For more than 25 years, Andrew has worked tirelessly, selflessly, and self-funded. He's been helping people around the world regain control of their health by simply advising them to raise their beds at the head end to a five-degree angle. I kid you not. This is going to be a fascinating discussion and I'm very pleased to welcome Andrew to Alchemy for the very first time. Andrew, how are you? Very good, very good. Well, I'm very excited about the chat we're about to have and it's something that I can speak to with first-hand experience of and we'll get into my experience after we have a proper chat with you first. So there's a question that I ask everybody who comes on the show for the first time, Andrew, and it's quite a broad and wide-ranging question. It is, how did you get from where you were to where you are now? Wow. I, um, I, was, I was involved in an irrigation project, um, Operation Oasis, which, has, has, well, it can actually solve global warming. Um, gave a couple of talks at the House of Commons. Um, one of the problems with the irrigating uh, desert stroke arid lands is that you get a buildup of salt on the, on the soil um, due to the eye evaporation rates. And um, it poisons the land, so you have to keep moving the irrigation project except where trees were present, which I found fascinating. So the trees were obviously using the salts in some way. So I asked the question, what are these trees doing with these salts? So I picked up a GCSE biology book by D.G. McKean, and I read a wholly inadequate explanation for fluid transporting trees. And if it was not for, for McKean's honesty and integrity, I probably I probably never would have discovered this, this um, this circulation theory. Um, what we keep reading in the book is that the um, the premise is poorly understood. There's lack of evidence, uh, and it it just made no sense. It made about as much sense as war and famine. What I was reading. So I said, okay, then, how does it really work? And um, it took me 20 minutes to solve the problem that the trees were evaporating water through the leaves, through transpiration, I have no problem with that. 98% of the water that comes through the roots evaporates through the leaves. But science has forgotten the golden rule. For every action, there must be a reaction. Mm. So if you evaporate 98% of the water from the leaf, you must concentrate whatever's left behind by 98%. Now, because the leaves produce sugars from photosynthesis, converting carbon dioxide into energy, then that loss of moisture gives us a concentrated sap at the top of the tree. So gravity dictates that the denser solution will move down. And again, for every action, there's a reaction. If you stimulate a downflow, because you're in a closed loop or semi-closed loop, you stimulate a return flow. So the downward flow would behave like a liquid plunger in a syringe, mm -hmm. would create a positive pressure in front of the falling sap, and also a negative pressure and reduced tension or, or increased tension, sorry, behind the falling sap. And that tension stretches right back down the other side of the vessels, 
out into the soil water. So as the as the the, the, the concentrated slop, uh, sap flows down the tree, it applies tension, which pulls water into the tree. So it, it just made so much sense. So I said, how can I test this? So I set up a simple experiment, which I'd done many times before. And I used six millimeter bore tubing. Um, I'd filled this with boiled water to, or degassed water to make sure there's no bubbles to break the stream. And then raised the center of the tube up to 24 meters up a cliff in Brixham. Both open ends of the tube were placed into two bottles of water, which also contained um, uh, degassed de water. And a, a small amount of colored salt solution was added to the center of the tube before it was raised up the cliff. Now, there's a problem for physics, because physics dictates that in a normal open-ended tube, water under normal atmospheric pressure cannot be raised more than 10 meters. Mm -hmm. Well, we went up to 24 meters, and it didn't seem to have a problem with it. <laughs> what a surprise. We're flying in the yeah. face of physics and established science. <laughs> yes. So the colored salt solution starts to flow down one side, which causes one bottle to overflow and the other bottle to go down. Now, it can't be siphon effect um, because you would need one, one bottle lower than the other bottle. And indeed, I tested siphon to see if it would work at the height, and it doesn't. Okay. What you tend to do is stretch the water. But the, the flow and return system driven by this um, process is, is adequate enough to cause water to flow up a cliff 24 metres without a pump. Wow. What a discovery. No, I mean, what a eureka moment for you to actually see that in action and not just theory. Well, yes, yes, it was, uh, it was an eye-opener. I have a friend who was um, uh, an engineer for uh, Southwest Water and a brilliant physicist. And I remember him sitting on his, on his lap with his elbows on his knees, shaking his head, saying, this can't <laughs> be happening. This cannot be happening. Why haven't they taught me this in school? Yeah. So, so uh, what was the next step then for you after kind of the euphoria of that settled down a little bit? Obviously, that, that opened up a rabbit hole for you. Yes, it did. Um, I quickly realised that what we're dealing here with is, is with a, a non-living physical force. Mm. So could this be the force that makes things live? Now, that's like, wow. So I thought, well, it must apply to any column of water that stands above ground level and evaporates water from the top. And I thought, well, that sounds an awful lot like human beings. You know, we're breathing out and we're performing the same function as the tree's leaves. We're evaporating water. So therefore, we must be concentrating the blood that passes through the lungs. Uh, impossible for this not to be happening. Mm. So that means that we have a denser blood coming out of the lungs, which passes through the heart and then injects back into the main artery predominantly. So gravity pulls on the denser blood and that draws it down to the kidneys. But again, for every action, there's a reaction. The downflow must induce a return flow or an improved return flow. Now, you might argue that we've got a heart that does the, the pumping. Um, but I'll ask you to think about a chicken's egg. Okay. Now, a chicken's egg is elliptical, so it can be rotated across one axis. So the, the, the food sac is in the middle of the egg. Mm hmm and the chicken needs to rotate the egg, otherwise it doesn't form. It sticks to one side of the uh, of the shell, um, and it doesn't it doesn't form properly. So eggs in incubators need to be rotated. So what what are we doing? We're actually inducing circulation by rotating the egg. 
So the salts and the, the, the food from the egg sac flows down through the white albumen and that generates a return flow. So now we have the primary circulation in place that builds up long before the heart functions, long before the heart is formed, in fact. So it was, it was well, again, that's me thinking sideways again. So, but so is, now, isn't that sometimes the best way to think? Well, yeah, I, th- I, think, I think it is, yeah, yeah. Um, some would disagree. <laughs> Uh, so, yeah. some some prefer the the blinkered approach, and you know, trust everything you read in science. And science today is a disgrace. Um, it's built on false premises, you know, osmosis, for example. How does water attract itself up the top of a giant California in redwood, tearing a hundred meters in the air yeah. without a pump? It doesn't. Root pressure. The roots somehow squeeze water out the top of a tree. Absolutely absurd. Mm. And uh, the cohesion tension theory is that as one molecule of water leaves to the atmosphere, a whole column of water is drawn up behind it. Well, that's, sorry, I won't say bullshit. Yes, I will. Well, why not? That's exactly what it is. So let's call yes. a spade a spade. <laughs> yeah. Um, so it, now, once you realize the importance of posture and how it affects circulation, mm. it Making making a bed horizontal doesn't seem to make much sense at all. Well, no, I'm going to play devil's advocate here for a second because surely, Andrew, the most comfortable sleeping position would be a flat bed. We've all grown up with that. We know that that's the way it is. We've all had plenty of experience of sleeping on the flat and that's how we get our best rest. Of course it is. What, what are you talking about? Why would we slant a bed? Well, um... I don't think they call it a deathbed for a, you know, without reason. Okay. A lot of people will die in the sleep. And in fact, many neurological conditions of first appearance is first thing in the morning trying to get out of bed when the legs don't work. Um, the, 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 the information in the, the, the literature against bed rest is absolutely phenomenal. There is thousands of published papers on the dangers of bed rest. And uh, this was um, published in a paper by Richard Asher in, I think it was 1942 or 43 or something like in the 40s. And uh, he wrote a paper called The Dangers of Bedrest. And um, absolutely staggering what the guy wrote. And he was saying, get people out of bed as soon as you can. You know, to fear bed as much as you fear the grave. Really? Yes. And that's because of the horizontal position, yeah? Yes. Yes. Okay, so take us through some of the negative effects that that can have on the human body, or some of the well, maladies, if you like. It, uh, over the years, I've, I've looked at a lot of case histories for multiple sclerosis, for example, and many, many times I've read that they, they try to get out of bed and the nerves have stopped working, and they've stopped working at night. Right. Um, there's uh, degeneration of the of the uh, heart. The heart atrophies away on prolonged bed rest. Um, muscles atrophy away. Um, joints become damaged and deformed. Um, decalcification of the skeleton. Multiple organ failure, which I actually saw happen to my father while he was in hospital. Um, kidneys stopped working. Um, it was urinating blood instead of urine. And uh, he was in a coma on a flat bed in hospital. And we raised his bed at the head end 
after a long battle with the nurses and doctors who told me he had hours to live. And uh, his urine started to flow clear and yellow, and they'd never seen that before. You know, so multiple organ failure is quite possible on a bed. Um, visual disturbances. Now, the interesting thing is if you take gravity out of the situation, which astronauts do when they go into space, because uh, we're dealing with gravity after all, um, they age 10 times faster than we do here on Earth. And they experience all of the accelerated age problems that we get as we get older. So NASA and um, many other of the uh, space programs have used prolonged bed rest and head down bed rest to actually simulate the deteriorating um, problems with being in space. So bed rest is a model for microgravity in space. So why is it, Andrew, that we are all lying on the horizontal then? Um, well, I'd like to ask you, who, who, designed, who, who designed the bed? Was it some brilliant physician who had a fantastic knowledge of human physiology? Mm. Or, or was it a carpenter? That's a good question, but I would tend to say it was probably the latter. <laughs> yes, I think, I think it would be the latter as well. Yeah, if we study animals, uh, if they're in a field, for instance, cattle and sheep, mm. If there's a hillside there, they'll all be sleeping facing up the hill. Now, you could argue they're up there because of predators. But if they were up there because of predators, they'd be facing down the hill, surely, to see what's coming up after them. Well, surely they would. And then you've described circulation theory, which is more than a theory now, because, I mean, you've demonstrated that. What is it about being on the horizontal while sleeping that affects our body in the negative ways that you've described? Why exactly does that happen? I still haven't wrapped my head around that. Well, as, as I explained earlier, the, the circulation depends on the direction of gravity. Mm. You know, we've got cerebrospinal fluid circulating. There's no pump involved in the CSF uh, circulation. The lymphatic circulation, again, has no pump, and yet they circulate. But we do know from published literature that it, it's related to posture and it's related to respiration. So if we're, if we're on a horizontal bed, then gravity is still going to be ask, acting upon the circulation, but it's going to be acting as a brake. It's going to be running perpendicular to all of the vessels in the body, which run from head to toe. Mm. You know, if I were to slice a person down the middle, I'd find that all of the vessels are running from down, from down the head right down to the toes. Right. So if gravity wasn't important, they might be running horizontally. Would it not be better to sleep standing up then? I mean, uncomfortable, yes, but would that, would that not be the optimum position for us? There are animals that do sleep standing up. Um, and if we look at um, dolphins, for example, they're buoyant in water and now sleep, uh, they call it logging, so they behave like logs in the sea. And they're actually on an angle while they're sleeping. And whales can sleep literally vertically with the tail down and the head up. Wow. Yeah. So they've got the option of, of adopting whatever posture they feel comfortable with in the ocean. Mm. Yeah. Um, if, if we look at um, chimps, um, primates, or the primates, they'll sleep in trees. The branches are not flat. They're, they're, they're always on an angle. Um, gorillas will sleep parked up against a tree. They'll sit up against a tree. That's interesting. It reminds me as well of, of um, like a fetus in the womb. They're not lying flat, are they? Never, never. And yet, as soon as they're born, we put them on a flat bed and they yeah. cry. 
And then mom picks them up because they're crying. They stop crying. And then they put them back down again really quietly. But the baby, as soon as he's flat, starts crying again. It's like saying, hey, up. You shouldn't be putting me down here flat, but nobody's listening. And then we have problems with sudden infant death syndrome. Mm. You well, know. well, it reminds me, as, I'm just thinking out loud here, but for as long as I can remember, I always needed lots of pillows when I was asleep. I could not sleep without a pillow. I mean, literally couldn't sleep without a, a pillow. I found that I, my breathing was affected. If I lay on my back completely flat without pillows, I couldn't breathe as well or as easily or as normally. And I remember that from a very, very young age. And people used to laugh at me because I would like three or four pillows stacked up in the bed all the time. Um, could it be that my body was telling me something back then? Without a doubt. Without, I mean, we all, we all experience what you're, you're, you're saying there. Is that as soon as you lie on a flat surface, sinuses get blocked up, mm. respiration becomes laboured, heart rate increases, circulation decreases, you get cold hands and cold feet, or some of us do. Yeah. And, and yet, if we tilt the bed, the airways open up, people with sleep apnea suddenly feel they've got got no sleep apnea um, and um, the heart rate decreases by 10 to 12 beats per minute on an incline compared to sleeping flat respiration rate decreases by four uh, sorry four to five breaths per minute um, on an incline so the heart rate is 10 to 12 beats per minute respiration four to five uh, breaths per minute less on, on an incline yet your circulation increases now if that was tested on my after he'd had surgery on a broken uh, broken wrist. And um, he was in the recovery room, and I went down to see him in the recovery room. And um, they had him upside down, so his head was down and his feet were up in the air. And I said, why are you doing this to my son? They said, well, we have to do this because in case they're, they're sick, they could choke on their own vomit. So I said, well, have you ever thought that you might, you might be making your patients sick? Keeping them upside down. Yeah. And she said, well, actually, I've never thought about that. <laughs> I says, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. Raise his bed six inches at the head end, or 15 centimetres, and you'll see a reduction in his heart rate and respiration rate by the, the measurements I've just given you. And you'll see him come round. Um, she said, well, well, we'll try this. You're, you're the parent, you know, I'll, I'll, I'll do what you wish. It went exactly as I said it would. And the nurse went off a, off a trolley. She was running around the wards telling people I was a genius <laughs> and that... <laughs> And that what she's just seen in the in the recovery room could actually save the NHS a fortune in lost time monitoring patients that don't need to be unconscious. Well, but when my when my son come round, he put his thumbs up and said, "I'm okay." <laughs> Amazing. I, mean, me, I knew it was going to happen. And the thing is, we will get to the golden question uh, regarding the NHS, etc., a little bit later on. But what was it? I mean, you've described the measurement and the the angle of tilt. What led you to decide that that was optimum and that was what would make the big difference? Um, like, I mean, obviously you experimented with your own bed first and you must have tried lots and lots of different things. Tell us a little bit about that process in the early stages. Well, uh, again, I was messing around with a, a loop of tubing, something I do. <laughs> <laughs> and the, the loop of tubing was filled with water um, and then joined together at the end. And in the middle of the tube was some co a coloured salt solution with food dye. And I stretched that out along the, the length of the bed and raised the bed up four inches. Mm. And what I found was that the circulation was increasing, it was improving in, in the tube, 
but we had a two-tier flow, so it was flowing down one side of the tube along the bottom, and the return flow was in the same side of the tube across the top. So there was no overall circulation in the loop. So when I raised the bed up to five inches, the whole thing circulated. So that represented the arterial flow down and the venous return back. Mm -hmm. So I added an extra inch for good measure because I thought, well, somebody's going to get the measurements wrong as they're going along. <laughs> <laughs> Just to err on, the, err on the side of caution. And uh, it turns out to be a, a, you know, a very, effective, uh, very effective incline. Okay, so if you were to increase that incline, like is it the case that the steeper the incline, the better, or is it that you reach that kind of, that magic number and once you're there, you're in business? Um, I've had a few people with spinal cord injuries um, actually try, try raising the bed uh, to a greater height. And the idea there was to actually stimulate nerve regeneration, nerve growth, by stimulating the cerebrospinal fluid flow. And uh, it, it did appear to show some, some improvements, but the trade-off is always comfort and mm. sliding down the bed. Yeah. So the higher you go, the more likely you are to, to, to slip down the bed. And the thing is, I know there will be people listening now who are screaming right now exactly that. I'm not tilting my bed. I'm not putting it at an, at an angle. It's going to be so uncomfortable. I am going to slide down that bed. Why would I do that? I'll take my chances, Andrew. What would you say to those people who might be thinking that right now? Uh, <laughs> yes, um, you're sleeping on a flat bed for what reason? That would that, that, be my, my, my question. Why are you sleeping on a flat bed? Okay, Where well, the, I, I'll, I'll answer that on behalf of those people and hopefully I get it kind of accurate. So I'll say, well, because that's what everybody does. Yeah, but does that make it right, you know? Not necessarily. A mistake, repeat, mistake repeated a hundred times doesn't make it the truth, does it? Okay, well, convince me, Andrew. Convince me further. I need more convincing that it is a mistake because I've been absolutely fine. I sleep like a baby. Well, um, people with edema, for example, uh, the medical professionals say raise your legs up. And what that tends to do is to shift the edema to your upper torso. So when you stand up in the morning, the water goes right back down to your feet. Mm. When you tilt the bed, it actually stops the, the, uh, the edema. It actually reverses the problem because you're addressing the cause. And the cause is when you're sleeping on a flat bed, your heart is doing all of the work. There's no assistance from gravity. In fact, as I said earlier, gravity is acting as a brake. So that means you're pressurizing the veins. The veins are not designed to be under positive pressure. Uh, if we uh, puncture the vein, for example, it would bleed. If we puncture an artery, it spurts out. So the veins are not under a huge pressure. So if you increase the pressure by sleeping on a flat bed, it causes the veins to bulge, and, and this leads to varicose veins, but also causes the, uh, the, the water inside the, uh, inside the veins to seep through the, the vein walls, and that leads to edema because the pressure on the inside of the vein is greater than the pressure on the outside of the vein. So when you tilt the bed, you actually reverse varicose veins no need for surgery. And um, this causes the uh, pressure inside the veins to be reduced, obviously, because you can see the veins going flat. It takes about four weeks. It took my wife four weeks for her varicose vein to go flat. And um, if, you're, if you're reducing the pressure in the veins, then now the water in the, the surrounding tissue starts to migrate back into the circulatory system, is whipped around the circulatory system and excreted in the urine. So you've actually addressed the cause, and the cause is... A flat bed. Wow. 
as I mentioned a little bit earlier, I can speak to this firsthand and I will get on to this uh, my own experience at some point as we're chatting. But I have one more devil's advocate question for you. It sprung to mind as you're speaking, Andrew. And Love of, it. of course, there will be some listeners who will be thinking this. For heaven's sake, what qualifications do you have? I mean, how can you tell us this? Are you a medical doctor or uh, what is it that can allow you to tell us what we should be doing with our bed and our sleeping and, and, and making all these claims that it's going to fix so many problems for us? Well, I was asked once if I have any degrees, and I said, well, I've got an album by the three degrees. <laughs> a good one, I hope. Yeah. Um, I, my, my, my background is in engineering. I'm, I'm not a doctor. Never professed to be a doctor. Uh, although my son calls me the gravity doctor. <laughs> I love it. Um, yeah, so... It's called multidisciplinary. I think they're, they're just embracing this now in the medical profession. That you do need people to look at things from a different angle. Mm. Excuse the pun. And um, hopefully the logic that, 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 that we're discussing here today will speak for itself. Uh, as for, as for um, a degree in medical um, whatever, I, I don't have a degree in, medical, uh, in the medical profession. And you know what? I would argue that it's absolutely a moot point or a moot question because for example I could teach a child to speak English by just speaking English to a child for a prolonged period of time I don't need a qualification in English to be able to teach a child English and I mean we could extend that to so many things in our lives around us so just because somebody doesn't have an academic qualification which at the end of the day is a piece of paper that somebody has decided has a certain amount of value be it perceived or otherwise it doesn't mean that somebody can't have that knowledge or come across that knowledge or discover it. Before academia, and of course there was a time before academia, people still discovered things and they still came across knowledge. <laughs> it doesn't mean that they ca cast it aside and said, well, we need somebody, to somebody in a position of perceived hierarchical authority to tell us that our knowledge or our first-hand experience of something has value. So I'm totally on board with you in that regard. And at this point, I will say that I have been... I don't know how long it is. I, I first came across your work about six months ago, Andrew, and I immediately put it into practice. I was listening to a podcast that I absolutely love by Mel Fabregas called Veritas, which I would strongly recommend to anybody who hasn't come across it already. You spoke very eloquently on that show with Mel at length about this, and I said, right, I have to try this. And I did. And I can tell you, the initially I didn't notice anything apart from the fact that for the first couple of nights I did slide down the bed a little bit and found it a bit uncomfortable and a bit disconcerting and I completely wasn't used to it however I made sure my measurements were absolutely correct and we'll go over those again a bit later on so I knew I had done it correctly and within two to three nights I no longer noticed the incline on the bed I wasn't sliding down anymore I don't know how that happens or why I wasn't but my body seemed to adjust or my mind adjusted and I lie in my bed, which is still at the incline to this day and, or to this night and will continue to be so. And there is absolutely no discernible difference for me as any other night up to the point where I decided to tilt that bed in comfort or anything else. Now, what have the differences been for me? I didn't think I had any major problems per se, but I was a very, very light sleeper all my life from as long as I can remember. A bird would tweet outside and I would wake up. So I was waking multiple times a night. Sleep apnea, perhaps, I don't know what it was, but a very, very light sleeper. That has dramatically improved from, and, and I'm not joking, from a week in, 
dramatic improvement there. You mentioned varicose veins, and varicose veins can be quite common in the testicular area. I'm someone who suffered from that for, I mean, it hasn't been a big deal, but I've suffered from it on and off for the bones of 15 years. Last time I got checked, which was about a month ago for that, completely disappeared. Completely <laughs> and utterly gone. So when you talk about varicose veins, that is something that, I mean, I can't prove it's the incline, but I haven't done anything else different to attempt to treat the varicose veins. I haven't done anything else different to attempt to uh, sort out the, the sleep apnea or the, the light sleeping, whatever it was. And in the mornings, I'm far less groggy. I don't have, uh, I don't, never had a problem with brain fog per se, but I would have mornings, particularly if I didn't have as much sleep as I would normally have. If I had, say, four or five hours sleep, which normally isn't me functioning very well for the morning if I've only had that length amount of sleep, I can still bounce out of bed without grogginess. And while I will get tired later on in the evening, a bit earlier than I normally would, I don't have that same problem in the morning or the afternoon. My day isn't ruined. And I can only put that down to an improved quality of sleep. And that has a knock-on effect in so many other areas of my life. My mood has improved as a result. I feel much, much better. The people around me have noticed that. Some might argue that I'm still a grump at the best of times, but genuinely, people have noticed an elevated mood. And I have made no other change other than inclined bed therapy. And that is me firsthand speaking to what you're talking about. So it has been transformative for me and I am putting it down to that and people can be as sceptical as they like but I, I mean I know my own body very well I know my own situation very well and I know my past and my background and I know that so many things have changed in the few months that I have tried this so I'm just one person surely you must be flooded with anecdotal evidence of what's going on from people who have tried this what kind of feedback have you got over the years Andrew? Oh that's had you condensed 25 years into into a, an answer to your question. Um, unbelievable, absolutely unbelievable what's happened to people. Um, again, it's, it's easier to believe the opposite and think it's all being made up, but mm. you've got to ask yourself, would anybody in the right mind, and I'm not saying I'm not in my right mind, <laughs> would, would anybody in the right mind waste 25 years of his life for absolutely no reward, helping people all over the world for no no apparent reason. Why would why would someone do that? You know, I mean, I've I've heard people say in the past that you you must have products to sell and you know you're punting something, but no. So uh, as for your, your question, whole range of illnesses, um, multiple sclerosis. Um, that was the first pilot study I did. Um, I had people throwing away walking sticks, getting out of wheelchairs. Two ladies that were blind regained the sight. Supposedly irreversible optic nerve damage caused through progressive MS. Within a month of each other, two ophthalmologists wrote to me and said, how can two blocks of wood under somebody's bed restore the sight? Um, Unbelievable. But the problem with multiple sclerosis for me was that the, the doctors had a get-out clause that they said, well, he could actually turn back into relapsing remitting MS. And what you might be experiencing or what these people might be experiencing is short-term benefits. Um, but we have a lady on the on our group on Facebook, Incline Bed Therapy on, on Facebook, Terry, Terry Harrison, her name is. And uh, she actually... <laughs> her... her um, Neurologist sacked himself. <laughs> he, he, 
You said you don't. I've never seen anyone get better from MS, but you you apparently have, and you no longer need my services anymore. So he didn't try and take the credit. <laughs> no, no. Um, so because MS was a bit hit and miss with the, the, the doctors, and in fact, one of the doctors from Bristol said that, uh, to one of the clients that I was helping, said that I would never, ever be permitted to make this mainstream medicine. Now, that told me a lot, and I, need, I needed to know that, because I, I, at, the, at the time I was struggling to understand why they weren't embracing what was happening to these people. Mm. But, but nevertheless, I said, well, you know, what, what if I get a person with spinal cord injury to try this? They said, well, if you can get one person with spinal cord injury, we'll listen. So the first two people that tried it, uh, John Mason and Julian Bowstead, um, John Mason's spine was smashed to smithereens, according to Grundy and Traumans at Oddstock Spinal Unit. And uh, he would always de be dependent on others. He would never be able to live independently. Um, the results were absolutely unprecedented. You know, it, just incredible. Uh, and, and even looking back today, it's, 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 it's even hard for me to believe. But, but it worked. Um, Julian's hands opened up. Um, his injury was in the, in the neck region after a di diving into a pool. And um, when I met him, his hands were locked up in two fists. And uh, his, his hands actually opened up and he was able to write his name and address. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. So, and again, the, there are seven case histories on my website uh, for people with spinal cord injury. But recently, uh, I've picked up the gauntlet again and approached a, a few people with spinal cord injury to try it again. And um, the first few people to try it, again, absolutely incredible what's happening. You know, one guy's reported that he can now walk without spasms. Um, he was a walker anyway, but used to tremendous problem with spasms while trying to walk. Spasm stopped. Even his, uh, even his um, trainer said that he's noticed huge improvements within two weeks. You know, the, the other, the other uh, lady, two, two and a half weeks now, she's just blown away. You know that the, the changes uh, that are occurring are amazing, and 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 again, following exactly the same path as the previous previous uh, people with their case histories. Mm -hmm. I did refer to a golden question a little bit earlier and you've, you've semi-answered it already. The cynics listening or the realists listening will know the answer to it, of course, anyway. But like, why then with these case studies, has it not been embraced by, say, the NHS or even medical or scientific communities around the world? Like, how can this be ignored? This is so big. Well, funnily enough, that's exactly what the lady with the spinal cord injury said. This is huge. You know, this is absolutely huge. I mean, she has a... Um, uh, uh, an academic background as well, which has helped to read through all the research. But um, the question is, if you know, if you have a patient cured, it's a customer for life lost. Yeah. You know, there, there's there's the problem. You know, if if you're not you, you you've not got somebody having their hand out for a, a bucket full of drugs every week, it's it's a rather expensive loss. So basically, you're, you're a threat to big business, as we've seen with people who espouse alternative cancer cures, etc., etc. We're talking about the same dynamic here, aren't we, Andrew? Uh, I still don't see myself as a threat. You know, all I want to do is, uh, is help these people. 
Well, exactly. But what I mean by that is a, a threat to the established order with regard to making that, uh, to maintaining that constant flow of money from maintaining people's symptoms and managing them rather than curing people and actually getting people well and better again. Yeah, I'm inclined to agree with you there. It's it, it, it's a sad state of affairs where money means more than people's lives. I couldn't, I couldn't agree more. Looking backwards a little bit, Andrew, because we could focus on the negatives and the fact that you have come across such, I suppose, um, mainstream opposition to this. But let's focus on the positives and a little bit more of the history as well, because something I was fascinated to discover was that you uncovered evidence or you, 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 over the course of your research, you noticed that in the ancient past, it seems to have been the case that a lot of people actually slept on an incline and that things like childbirth was performed on an incline and there is evidence of this in the past. Yeah, yes, there is. Um, one hospital in particular in, in Constantinople, ancient Constantinople, uh, was renowned for being one of the best health practices in the, in the, in the whole world and uh, people would flock there from all over the place and there's a, a beautiful drawing or painting and all of the beds in the ward are on an incline and nobody's asking why. You know, we have two presidents from America that slept on an incline, um, one after a bullet wound, and uh, the other was um, through, through polio, presumably, which was Roosevelt. And uh, their beds are, are actually in museums. So the president slept on an incline and uh, in the, the incline bed was used in the... Uh, in the uh, cholera and sorry, not the tuberculosis uh, epidemics, you know, there's a, another beautiful picture of uh, whole classrooms on the rooftop of a what must have been a sanitarium. Mm. Um, in those days, it didn't mean a mental institute; it meant a place where you went for health. And um, they were all on an incline. All these kids were on an incline bed on top of a roof. I mean, that's so, not by accident. No, 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 not at all. And in fact, if I look back into the, I look back into the sweating sickness in the Tudor period, which killed millions and millions of people, and um, they they found that if they placed two guards by the side of a patient's bed and kept them sitting up, they survived. If they let them lie down, they were dead by morning. It goes back further than that, John. If we look at the beds that they pulled out of the ancient Egyptian tombs, mm. some of them buried for 4,000, 5,000 years, they're inclined. And um, they're in museums around the world, visited by millions of people, and nobody's asking why they slept on a sloping bed. They're probably looking at them thinking how backwards they were because they didn't have spirit levels in those days. Well, exactly, but, yeah, and because people weren't walking around with iPhones at that stage, well, they, they, yes. they couldn't have been technolo technologically advanced in any way, could they? Or they couldn't have known stuff that we don't know or knowledge that we've lost. It couldn't be one the case. The, one of the oldest known documents, or the oldest known document on spinal cord injury and brain injury is actually on a papyrus that come from the ancient Egyptians. They were treating spinal cord injury and brain injury in those days. Fascinating. And I mean, that's not something that I would ever have imagined or certainly wouldn't have been brought up through a mainstream schooling system to have ever considered. So is there a potential downside to it then? There must be. I mean, for every positive, there's a negative and we've got yin and we've yang and we've duality and we've this, that and the other. What are the downsides, Andrew? 
Um, slipping down the bed. You know, so, uh, <laughs> we can live with that. Two nights get, of slipping down get, the bed. <laughs> get, get, getting a wedgie from your underwear. <laughs> so, you know, just pay a little bit of attention to what sheets you use, I suppose. Mm. Um, it has altered blood pressure. So blood pressure has been shown to move in all directions. It's gone up, it's gone down, it's stabilised. You know, people with um, erratic uh, blood pressure... Um, going off the chart, especially with spinal cord injury where the blood pressure is all over the place. Mm. Um, that was stabilised. And the guy, I think the guy was uh, 28 years post-injury with erratic blood pressure, and it, it actually stabilised his blood pressure. So it's, it's worth having a, a regular checkup just to make sure your blood pressure is okay. Um, what else? Well, I don't think there is any, any, any downside, but there are massive downsides to sleeping on a flatbed massive downsides in, in years ago they used to have patients going to have a well to mothers going expecting mothers to go in and have a baby and they'd be putting them in bed for weeks on end uh, recuperation but what they found was that this was leading to uh, blood clots um you know serious serious medical complications now the order of the day is to get them on the feet and moving around Wow. So when we're, when we're upright, we're performing as we should be. Yeah. When we're lying horizontally, things are going bad. Well, that's interesting because I uh, I first started to use a stand-up desk while working about two years ago, maybe two, two and a half years ago. And I remember everybody saying to me, you're mad, why would you want to stand up all day? You'll be so tired. And the benefits that I noticed, and it wasn't for any particular medical reason, I just wanted to try it because I had heard that there were benefits to it. And I found increased energy levels and I wasn't as tired at the end of a day's work and lots of benefits from that. And I mean, I spend as little time sitting down now as a result of that. So is there some kind of link there? I mean, for example, is, is sitting down bad? Um, should we be standing or lying at an incline? Is sitting somewhere in between? Or what, what, is, what is the link between all of these different positions? Well, again, your circulation's compromised because where, where you sit down, you've got pressure on, on the backs of your legs, yeah. on, your, on your butt, yeah? Um, in fact, a lot of people have had strokes on the toilet seat, sitting, sitting down on the toilet seat where the pressure's compromise the circulation and, uh, and and it's quite common for people to have a stroke sitting on the toilet for long periods okay yeah so uh, sitting down i think john vernikos former head of nasa life sciences has wrote the book sitting kills movement heals well worth uh, having a, a look at that video and, and and you know a book book is interesting too and um again going back to the uh the astronauts, you know, Jones highly qualified on gravity and its effects. So, um, you know, I have no doubt to, about what she's saying. And she, she actually reported about this um, gentleman that she saw. Um, she was giving a talk and uh, she was interrupted and this guy shouts up, and what's this all about then? And she explained to him that all he needed to do was to stand up every, every 20 to 30 minutes. But he was in a wheelchair, of course, so she realised what she'd said and thought, oh. Yeah. And, but then after that, she was told that he was the, he was the previous um, head of sciences in NASA. And um, he was in his 90s. And a friend had reported back to Joan that, that months, months, many months later, um, she'd been invited to his house. And when she opened the door, this guy was no longer in a wheelchair. And he was serving them at the table. 
Incredible. In his 90s. So listen, Andrew, you've got me convinced. I'm going to incline that bed. What kind of fancy bed do I need to buy? You must be in the business of selling beds. I've come to the conclusion that that's what you're all about. So what kind of bed are you going to sell me? How much money do I have to spend on this? Very little, actually. If you go in the, in the, um, the garden and find a couple of house bricks, uh, wrap them up in a polythene bag so they don't scratch your floor, job done. You can use books. You know, if you're going to use books, use the medical books because they'll all need to be rewritten anyway. <laughs> I love it. PVC pipe, you know, the, uh, the grey pipe that you get from the builder's merchants can be cut uh, to the right length. And then the legs of the bed inserted into the plastic tube, which is a nice, neat job. Mm-hmm. Or you can buy bed and furniture risers or stroke risers from eBay, which are about 10, 10 pounds for a set of four. You know, if you need to, to raise the bed higher, then you can put one inside the other one, which will give you an extra extra inch or so. So very, very little out, outlay at all. Um, no need to buy an expensive bed. Um, I've modified my own bed, um, which was a standard wooden frame bed, a German-made one. I think it cost me £150, you know, ultimate cheapskate. <laughs> and and um, I uh, just literally took the side rails off Cut the side rails at a slope, and then rescrewed the side rails on onto the headboard and footboard. So the headboard and footboard footboard were upright. Um, prized off the, um, the the slat rail and altered that a little bit as well to give me the best angle. Added a wedge down the centre of the bed to support the middle of the slats. Job done. It's been like that ever since. Wow, so no bed sales then. It is literally as simple as raising your pre-existing bed. Yeah, I did. In all fairness, in in the nineteen late nineteen fifties, sorry, nineteen ninety five, ninety six, I did start making a bed. Um, mm. Silent night, silent night beds were making the beds for me, and um, I thought, well, you know, we'll we'll just carry on with this and see what happens. But silent night decided that my beds were looking, making their beds look unsafe, and, and no longer wanted to make the beds for me. <laughs> So again, commerce trumps common sense. <laughs> yes, yes. Well, I said to them, I said, look, you've got an ideal opportunity here to sell someone who has a perfectly good bed, another bed. What have you got to lose? Yeah. It must be very satisfying and rewarding for you to hear all these stories of so many people who've derived such benefits from it. But I would imagine there must be a degree of frustration for you as well, Andrew, because you've described the opposition from, say, the medical and scientific communities and I would imagine that when you talk to people about this, there is a, a huge amount of scepticism and a closed-mindedness to it. Um, so how, how have you dealt with that frustration and how have you kept going, putting your message out there when I would imagine there's, while, while there is the reward and the satisfaction of it, there's certainly no material reward for you whatsoever. And so many people are driven by material reward for what they do. So what, what is the driving factor for you or the driving force? And describe the frustration, if there is any. Well, um, one of the, um, the favourites was that there's no published peer reviews, uh, studies in the journals to support this. Mm. So therefore, the information you've got is anecdotal. Um, but I challenge anyone to look into the, you know, the... Um, the efficacy of the, the journals who are under close scrutiny at the moment because they've published ridiculous papers um, and bogus bogus reports. Um, the whole 
whole system is collapsing. You know, the the, the, the peer review system is, is just, well, in my opinion, it's dead in the water. Um, and yet that's used uh, as an argument against this. So, you know, as, as a counter-argument, look into the, you know, the, the criminal activity and the fraud that's going on in, in the uh, in the journals. Mm. Um, one one example is my experiment at Brixham, which I explained earlier, um, was uh, taken, well, actually, there's a guy called Boatwright, um, a doctor, who contacted me and said, look, you know, I really like what you're doing, and here's my experiment on um, siphoning a vacuum, which actually supports what you're doing. And I said, well, you know, is there any chance of you helping me write a paper? Sure, sure, we can, sure. And a long period went past, I heard nothing. Then I got a, a, nod, a nod from uh, another one of the authors that they'd actually published my experiment in the Nature Journal. Good grief. <laughs> yes. So they claimed that they discovered it. And um, I contacted the, uh, the, the, the journal's editor. It was um, Scientific Reports. Um, a guy called Rich, I think he's Richard Smith, was the editor, and um, contacted the universities as well, and they all s- sort of dug the heels in and tried to, you know, bolster it up as best as, best as they could. Um, but I actually got them to admit that they'd, um, that they'd seen my work and um, had copied it, and I've got the emails to prove it. Yeah. But um, the best I could get out of the the Nature Journal was a corrigendum, which is a, a major alteration, and it actually credits me with the uh, an experiment that looks very similar to theirs. <laughs> <laughs> wow! I, I know personally, I would be tearing my hair out at that kind of thing. I would find that very demoralising. I tend to be a bit of a crusader anyway. <laughs> if there's information that I want to get out there, I mean, this show is testament to that. It's not done for reward or anything like that. It's just something that I, I feel needs to be done. And obviously, you're, you're the same with regard to this information. But it must get, I, d- I don't know, it must be demoralizing at times. I mean, what you've just described would be heartaching. But the rewards are great. The rewards are fantastic. I mean, I had a, a, a lady rang me up one day and said, um, what, what's a bull terrier like? Around a, a severely disabled child. Mm. I said, what's the matter with your kid? She said, why do you want to know? I said, I might be able to help. She said, don't be bloody ridiculous. She said, I've rang for information about bull terrier. And I said, look, I can't make you listen. She said, well, go on, spit it out. Really abrupt um, London accent. Yeah. And um, I told her all about my work, what I'd been helping people with spinal cord injury, Parkinson's disease, and many other conditions as well. And she started crying. And um, I heard her say to her husband, because her husband come on the phone and give me a, a, a bollocking down the phone for upsetting his wife. And I heard her say, look, look, listen to what he has to say. So I had to go through it all again. Yeah. And uh, they tilted the, the, the girl's bed. Now, in 1995, I think it was 90, she was 12 years of age. She never walked to the age of 12. She cerebral palsy. Mm. Um, if the, ability, the, the prognosis was that if she ever developed the ability to come or brush her own hair, that would be marked progress, but it's never going to happen, so don't hold your breath. They'd spent a fortune. They took her all over the, all over the world to try and get so, something that worked. And um, the report started to come back that she was feeling a bit stronger, you know, over the weeks as the weeks went past. 
And then they, they uh, observed her trying to move herself around in bed and later because she could move in bed and roll in bed. And then she was able to pull herself up the bed, which I'd never seen before. And, you know, the progress was absolutely phenomenal. And then I think it was about eight, nine months later, uh, the, uh, the, they were on the phone again and they said, we, we're just off down to the school. Um, we've just had a call from the, the school. I said, oh, nothing's happened to your girl, has it? She said, no, no, she's, she's got out of the wheelchair and walked and managed to climb a flight of stairs. Now, when, wow. when, when we tilted the bed, she had scoliosis of the spine and also she wore calipers daytimes at night time. She had no muscles on her legs because the legs had never been used. Well, she had muscles, obviously, but not, not, not well, uh, well formed. And um, at one stage, the parents said, look, we're going to have to put the bed down because the legs were looking too masculine. <laughs> <laughs> they, took, they, took, they took this girl in to see this specialist who gave the lousy prognosis in Wales. And for 20 minutes, they never got a word out of him. He was just in shock because this little girl had walked in the, in the, in the office herself. Late, later reports was she'd, she'd walked, I think she'd walked 24 times around an estate. And um, I actually found her um, more recently, earlier this year, yeah. on, on Facebook. And um, I got talking to her, and, and she admitted that she was the girl. And she's living in a flat on her own. She's in her 20s now. Um, absolutely amazing. But she wouldn't help. She wouldn't help. And then she unfriended me off Facebook. <laughs> Hang on a minute. Surely this lady must be the most grateful person that ever lived. No. How? No, 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 no. How? This maybe, maybe, maybe she is, but, but, you know, I don't know. Does it matter? Well, I guess not. I guess not. Well, um, I, I, it's so admirable how you've managed to was, remove but... any ego from this. It's just, it's, it, it's, it's amazing. It's testament to not your willpower, but just the makeup and I suppose how selfless you've been about this, Andrew. Yeah, I'm no angel. Look, don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm a bloody engineer. I'm no angel. <laughs> No, it's just, I like to see how things work. And, you know, I think, well, going back to the girl, um, for reward, you're saying, for reward. Mm. I got a phone call the one day and I, I picked the phone up and I said, hello. She said, is this Andrew? I said, yes. She said, I'm the girl that, that, that you've been helping. Mm. And she said, I just want to say thank you for all you've done for me. And I collapsed on the floor. My legs went from underneath me. I had not, my legs were just like jelly. Really? Yes. Wow. Yes, I was in, I was in tears. So now I try and help, you know, I've tried to help. Uh, there was two members of my family with, with cerebral palsy, and I asked the parents of this girl if they'd help um, to, to contact these, you know, and, get, and give me some information that I could use to help convince the, the two members of my family, mm. not, not my immediate family, distant family. And um, never had no, no uh, help. And both of the, well, one of those is now, is now passed. Right. And there's nothing I could have said, and I tried, there's nothing I could have said to make them listen. You know, who's going to believe that the, their uncle is, uh, is, uh, is way ahead of the field? Yeah. And I mean, ultimately, people have to, uh, have to live and die by their own decisions anyway, and we are responsible for ourselves. Um, and yeah, each to their own, I guess. Yes, yes. But there are other conditions that it's working with. Um, we have uh, uh, 
some patients in Botswana in in in, um, in Africa, and uh, they got full blown AIDS mm. right at the end of life, chronic diarrhea, a grey skin pallor, um, no hope. Medications not worked, and uh, literally, they they're passing. So this this friend I met online tilted the beds, or advised them to tilt the beds. Diarrhea stopped over a few weeks. They got the skin colour was coming back to normal. Kidneys began functioning normal, and um, they got out of bed. And to this day, they're still alive and doing okay. From such a seemingly simple change. Incredible. And again, it's gravity because astronauts in space, you've took gravity away, their immune system collapses in space. You know, they have tremendous problems with their immune system. Mm-hmm. And we also know from, the, from the, the studies on bed rest that the immune system collapses on bed rest too. The whole thing leaves me speechless and... I will admit that I was quite sceptical, although very keen to try it when I first heard your interview with Mel. And I've spoken about my experience of it now, and I have spoken to as many people in my life as I possibly can. And some people think I'm completely mad, what, your bed is tilted. But I do know of at least three or four other people who have tried the same thing. And one in particular uh, who has a son who had incontinence problems. His son's incontinence cleared up overnight the first night, I think the child was maybe eight or nine years of age, overnight, the very first night that the bed was put on an incline and has never returned since, and that's maybe two, three months ago. I'm starting to build my own little store of anecdotes as well yes. about this, and it, it, it is just amazing. So if anybody would like to share their stories or to share your information, what's the best place to go to, Andrew, or how can they maybe, um, if they have more questions that I haven't covered, how can they find out more about this? Well, I'm on Facebook on inclinebedtherapy.com. We have a group group of people there. But my website, where all the information is kept, is called inclinedbedtherapy.com. And have you got any kind of a last message for the listeners um, or any parting words of wisdom that you think may be of value? Because everything you've said so far is of such value. But how would you just sum this all up, this journey that you've been on for a quarter of a century at this stage? Oh, thanks for reminding me, mate. Cheers. <laughs> Cheers. Well, I'd, I'd like before you go is, is to mention about diabetes because yeah. we've had tremendous success with diabetes. There's a, a study being produced by the government in, in Pompeii Island, um, which is in Micronesia, mm-hmm. and um, they have a tremendous problem with obesity and diabetes thanks to the American diet being introduced. They were all perfectly fine before the the burgers arrived yeah and the fizzy drinks and um they tilted the beds of um 11 patients and all 11 patients responded diabetes sugar levels dropped now again the density of sugar is important because with the bed on an incline you're getting rid of the excess sugar out of your bloodstream now that study is there on my website for anyone to read Brilliant. And there's just something that springs to mind as well. Correct me if I'm wrong, but this, this seems to be from memory that I think we, we detoxify a lot through our feet or we expel toxins through our feet. So again, the circulatory system that you've described, surely that, that would be beneficial then to that, that excretion process while we sleep. 
uh, because our feet are at the bottom of an incline. Yeah, I think that's why we have toenails and fingernails, actually, is to, is to, is to actually excrete uh, spent material from the ends of our circulatory system. You know, I think that's why elephants have tusks. You know, it's, they don't grow these tusks to lift trees up. Yeah. It's actually a disposal site for getting rid of, get, getting rid of uh, uh, material. You know, as it grows out of the body. So I think you're right. Now, interestingly enough, we were talking about this earlier today, um, that um, t- people have shed toenails and fingernails. Now, before you go, oh, my God, you know, what is what is he talking about? People that have got problems with the, um, the, the, the nails uh, have, have actually shed the nails and grown perfectly healthy nails back and replaced them. So, again, that, that, that sort of adds a bit of... Uh, a credence to what I've just said as a, as a disposal site for, for spent minerals that, that travel down. And, and in fact, if we think about um, um, the, the, the position of the, the, the testicles in males, if you like, yeah. Now, that what we've got there is a high level of salt. Now, is that a disposal site for the cerebrospinal fluid to offload the salt as a sump, you know, to get rid of the excess excess salts from the bottom of the, the central nervous system. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I actually think it is. And, um, yeah, so, and we shed, that, that's an interesting point as well, and it's something else I've noticed, is that we, we go and get a tan in the summer. Yeah. And, uh, the tan quickly fades. When you've got a bed on an angle, that tan seems to stick around a hell of a lot longer. Really? Which, well, yeah, which means your cells are not dying off as quick as they used to be. That's very interesting. Even for someone yeah. like me with my translucent Irish skin who doesn't get a tan anyway. Oh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> I, think, I think the sun was spotted in Ireland one day last year, wasn't it? It was, and I happened not to be in the country that day. So, <laughs> But our skin conditions as well, you know, before, before, you, you, you know, before we, we finish the talk, I think this is really important, Yeah. Um, is, is psoriasis. Um, a lady, uh, Penny, Penny Meredith, um, she's passed recently. She had a, a brain tumor. Lovely lady, beautiful lady. Um, back in ninety, again ninety six, I think he was, or ninety five, ninety six. She would wake up. She's a nurse, so she, you know, she understood what was going on in her body. And this current condition called psoriatic arthritis is terrible. She'd wake up in the mornings. Hands would be immersed in hot water for an hour and a half, trying to get her hands to move. Uh, she had rash all over her body in her hair um, from psoriasis and uh, she got up the next morning after tilting the bed and she had no problems with her hands she had to, she could move them so her hands were working after one night and that, that problem never ever come back again after all the, after all those years but her skin cleared up and I have a photograph of her on a beach in in um, um, Oh, Lanzarote, where, where we went for a holiday with her. And um, she's copping rounds over her boobs, so it's all discreet. <laughs> but there's not a blemish on her skin. Not a blemish on her skin. Now, wow. this was backed up by a friend of, um, of my son's who came down to meet me, and she has psoriasis. And she agreed for me to take a series of photographs. So the video is published on YouTube, so you can see the changes in, in this lady's skin. And uh, I took, took a set of photographs and we left it for a, a few weeks. Took another set of photographs and left it for a, a, a few weeks. Then another one a month or so later. And over the period of, a, I think it was about f- four or five months, skin completely cleared up. 
no psoriasis. Amazing. I'm actually going to add to the stories that we've been telling as well. Just uh, something has come to mind that I forgot to mention earlier in my own personal experience. I could never, ever, ever sleep on my back. Never. It just, I couldn't get asleep. I would wake immediately with a loud snore. I'm not a snorer, but if I was on my back, a snore. I can sleep comfortably at an incline on my back. I don't snore and it's not a problem for me. And I did notice about two weeks in because... I noticed I was naturally starting to gravitate while sleeping to sleeping on my back. And I noticed that I was starting to get a pain in my back. And I got it checked out uh, with, with a chiropractor. And we have kind of a before and an after. And it seems that my skeleton slightly shifted due to my changed sleeping position in a positive way. And there were a couple of little niggles I had, such as one with my hip, that cleared up as a result of this. And I haven't had to go near a chiropractor since. Which is, which is amazing, yeah, and I can't believe I forgot to, to say that earlier, but it, there's just there's so many little changes that happen yes. at different times, and that one about sleeping at the back, I mean, I, or sleeping on my back, I just couldn't do it, and now it's as comfortable as anything, and sometimes I sleep on my, I, I generally go asleep on my side, um, and quite often I'll wake up on my back. Is there a, a recommended sleeping position? Um, I didn't ask you that earlier. Should we sleep on our back? Or sometimes you hear it's beneficial to sleep on your right rather than your left-hand side. Or what would you say about that? Well, I like to think of ourselves as a kebab with a skewer, you know, turning it slowly on the bed. So rotation is, 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 is the best method. Okay, so coming back to the chicken's egg, yeah. Yes, yes. And I think that that would benefit greatly for all of our systems if we do rotate. Um, what I've found recently, uh, again, we're, we're constantly learning with this, is if you lie on your side and then you sort of ease yourself back till you wait on your right cheek or your left cheek, mm-hmm. your buttocks, yeah, and on your shoulder blade. Now, the added bonus of this is that you can have both of your hands down by your side comfortably and also your, your ear canal is free from the, from the pillow. Ah, worth a try. Yeah, it's worth yeah. a try. Worth a try. But again, it's another way of sharing our weight evenly. Yeah, it's it's absolutely fascinating, and no doubt, if we speak in a year's time, we'll be able to speak about completely different things and little things that have been tried. So I think we should do it, Andrew. I mean, if you're up for it, let's check in on a regular basis because this this information is not just fascinating, but it is so valuable. It's so easy and demonstrable in everybody's everyday life. Just check out the measurements, go to Andrew's website, tilt your bed and see what happens. What have you got to lose? Indeed. So parting message, Andrew, hit me with it. What would you like to say to the listeners? Get your bed on an angle. Just do it. Just, just, just do it. Sleep yourself to better health. I couldn't agree more. Um, I have the power. You have the power. We have the power. Andrew Fletcher, it's been such a pleasure to speak to you. Thank you for the work you're doing. Thank you for helping me with my health, even though I didn't know that it needed helping. And continue the work that you're doing. I'll try and get your message out there as much as I possibly can. And it's been so great to speak to you on Alchemy. Thank you, John. Thank you very much. Alchemy. I hope you've enjoyed this episode of Alchemy. Lots and lots of people have been getting in touch saying, John, you don't do as many shows as you used to do. What's the story? Can you do some more? Um, 
Well, the reason, I suppose, the honest answer is that it costs quite a lot of money to put on these shows. The hosting is expensive and becomes more and more expensive. So the more shows I put up, the more downloads there are, which means it costs me more money. And while I don't do this for profit, I certainly don't do it to make a substantial loss either. So the more donations that come in, the more shows there will be. And thank you to anybody who has donated in the past. It's not about money for me, but if you would like to do so, if you would like to donate even, you can do so from the website Alchemy Radio. .net and PayPal and all the usual stuff. Go to the website, you'll find out how to do it. So until the next time, I have the power, you have the power, we have the power. Thank you for tuning in to Alchemy. 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 Oh
Alchemy. Alchemy. Care. Will. Intelligence. Imagination. Alchemy. Alchemy.